and Rachel and Joseph last. But he himself passed on ahead of them and bowed to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. Then Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. He lifted his eyes and saw the women and the children and said, Who are these with you? So he said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the maids came near with their children, and they bowed down. Leah, likewise, came near with her children, and they bowed down. And afterward, Joseph came near with Rachel, and they bowed down. And he said, What do you mean by all this company which I have met? And he said, To find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have plenty, my brother. Let what you have be your own. Jacob said, No, please, now if I find favor in your sight, then take my present from my hand, for I see your face as one sees the face of God, and you have received me favorably. Please take my gift, which has been brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with me, and because I have plenty. Thus he urged him, and he took it. Then Esau said, Let us take our journey and go. I will go before you. But he said to him, My Lord knows that the children are frail, and that the flocks and herds which are nursing are a care to me, and if they are driven hard one day, all the flocks will die. Please let my Lord pass on before his servant, and I will proceed at my leisure according to the pace of the cattle that are before me and according to the pace of the children until I come to my Lord at Seir. Esau said, Please let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, What need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. Jacob journeyed to Succoth and built for himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore the place is named Succoth. Now Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, when he came from Paddan Aram and camped before the city. He bought the piece of land where he had pitched his tent from the hand of the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, for 100 pieces of money. Then he erected an altar and called it El Eloi Israel. Now as we consider this chapter this morning, we'll, we'll have two main points. Two main points this morning. First, clothe yourselves with humility. And then, secondly, acknowledge the goodness of God. Clothe yourselves with humility and acknowledge the goodness of God. And uh, we'll be spending more time on the, on the first point than, than the second. And so, if you were with us last week, we saw in, in Genesis 32 how Jacob was, was greatly afraid and distressed because Esau was coming toward him with 400 men. We saw there Jacob's prudent actions as well as his prayer for deliverance. We saw him wrestling with God and refusing to let go unless God would give him a blessing. And Jacob received that blessing. And then here in chapter 33, we observe the way in which the Lord answered Jacob's prayer for deliverance. And we left Jacob last week at the end of chapter 32 as the sun was rising and he was crossing over Penuel. He was limping as he went because uh, the Lord had touched the, the, uh, the socket of his hip and dislocated it. And now he lifts up his eyes. He sees the meeting on the horizon, right? Esau and the 400 men are coming. 
He doesn't know how this is going to turn out. And so he arranges his family with Joseph and Rachel, the most beloved, being put last in line, furthest from any potential danger. But Jacob himself goes out front in front of everyone and bows seven times to the ground. Both in his actions and in his words, throughout the chapter, he portrays a humility and a desire to get along. Not only does he bow to the ground seven times before his brother, but he also refers to himself as your servant. Verse 5, he refers to Esau twice as my Lord. You see that in verse 8 and verse 13. And we need to keep in mind, as we, as we see these things here in chapter 33, we need to keep in mind the whole story. The whole story. While he was still in his mother's womb, the Lord had told Rebekah concerning Jacob. Genesis 25, 23. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. Esau said to serve Jacob. The Lord had spoken concerning what would come in the future, and then, in time, as we know, Jacob took the birthright by deceit. He, uh, well, took the birthright by shrewdness, right? Selling Esau the stew, and then took the, the blessing by deceit as he deceived his father Isaac. But when Isaac pronounced the blessing upon Jacob in Genesis 27:29, he said this. He said, may peoples serve you, and nations bow down to you, be master of your mother's brothers, and may your mother's sons bow down to you. In other words, the blessing was that Esau was supposed to be bowing down to Jacob. Cursed be those who curse you, and blessed be those whom you bless. But, despite the promises and the blessings which he had, even in regard to superiority over his brother Esau, Jacob now humbles himself before his brother in terms of his actions in terms of his words and also in terms of that large gift, those 580 animals that we saw last week in chapter 32 that he sent out so that he might find favor in the sight of his brother. By his words and his actions, Jacob's conduct here is living proof of Proverbs 15.1, that a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Matthew Henry commented on Jacob's conduct here by saying, the way to recover peace when it has been broken is to do our duty, pay our respects upon all occasions as if it never had been broken. It is the remembering and the repeating of matters that separates friends and perpetuates the separation. A humble, submissive carriage goes a great way towards the turning away of wrath. Many preserve themselves by humbling themselves. The bullet flies over him that stoops. And indeed, there is some wisdom to be gleaned here from Jacob's conduct. But in order to rightly glean the wisdom, we need to think carefully and make distinctions among things that differ. Broadly speaking, my pastoral counsel to you is that it's probably not a good idea to approach someone who has threatened your life and bow down before them seven times and refer to yourself as their servant and refer to them as your Lord. As a general rule, my pastoral counsel is don't do that. That's not a good idea. J.C. Ryle once wrote that the Bible says, if any man take thy coat, let him take thy cloak also. But the Bible nowhere says that we are to regard the man who has violently taken our coats and cloaks as a pleasant, praiseworthy, and honest man and to shake hands with him as a dear friend. Right? We, we, uh, we're supposed to uh, give our 
cloak to the one who takes our coats, but we don't regard this fellow as, as a great guy, right? We, we get along, but at the same time, we recognize that this man is not our dear friend. And so we should certainly love our enemies, but as we've considered again and again here in Genesis, in our dealings with enemies, we need to be shrewd as serpents and as innocent as doves. In this case particular, Jacob was interacting with Esau because he had to, right? There was, there was no, way, no way getting around it. Jacob probably could have avoided Esau indefinitely if he had remained with Laban back in the east in Haran. But once he had been explicitly commanded by God to return to the land of Canaan, there's probably no way of getting around meeting Esau because Jacob was coming and Esau would hear of it. And as we see, Esau came up to meet him. Going back to Canaan meant necessarily that there would be some required interaction with Esau. This was, this was part of the package, so to speak, for his return to the land of Canaan in obedience to God. And that being the case, it was therefore important for Jacob to behave himself appropriately, both for his own safety and for the safety of his household. And sometimes you and I will have to have awkward and difficult interactions with others too. And when we do, we will have to conduct ourselves appropriately according to the situation. Sometimes the best way forward is gentleness, generosity, and humility of the very sort that we see illustrated by Jacob here. Sometimes this is the way in which ruptured relationships can be mended. Sometimes this is the way in which a difficult situation can be smoothed out. Sometimes this is the way by which a powerful opponent can be pacified. It's said in Proverbs 25:15 that by forbearance a ruler may be persuaded and a soft tongue breaks a bone. Likewise, Ecclesiastes 10:4, if the ruler's temper rises against you, do not abandon your position because composure allays great offenses. Composure, gentleness, sticking with it. Humility, generosity, and gentleness can help to set us up for success in a difficult situation. We saw Jacob's prudence and prayer last week in chapter 32, and we see his prudence on display here again in chapter 33. But with that said, we always need to also keep in mind such teaching as is found in Ephesians 4.29. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Likewise, Colossians 4, 6, Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. The point is, different moments have different needs. Different persons, different situations require different responses. Some situations require the response which Paul required of Titus. Titus chapter 1, in regard to silencing rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers who were teaching such things as ought not to be taught. And what did he say? He said, reprove them severely so that they may be sound in the faith. Titus 1.13. Some situations require the response with which Paul opposed Elamus, that false prophet and magician who opposed his missionary work on the island of Cyprus in Acts 13. And Paul said to him, Acts 13.10, you who are full of all deceit and fraud, 
You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease to make crooked the straight ways of the Lord? That's not particularly gentle or particularly generous, but it was true. And under the circumstances, it needed to be said. It's been said before that you can get along with anybody if you do what they want. Now that's, that's pretty accurate, but as we all know, you can't always do what the other person might want you to do. Some interactions, therefore, require a firmer hand than others. In Jacob's situation, though, the best possible thing was to move forward in this humble, generous, and gentle fashion which we see here in this chapter. This certainly fell within the bounds of what Paul was speaking of in Romans 13, 18, when he said, If possible, as far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. As such, he is a model to us in these difficult meetings, these difficult interactions. Cyril of Alexandria in the ancient church commented on Jacob's behavior here by saying, From this, we too learn that it is necessary to be meek and peaceable and that we ought always to strive to get through situations without being contentious. And so there is... Uh, there's certainly something worthy of our consideration and imitation of Jacob here at the personal level. But there is also something else here in the conduct of Jacob and the conduct of Jacob's family before Esau. Again, just imagine the scene. Jacob, who has the blessings, who has the promises, who had this prophecy concerning him while he was still in his mother's womb, bows down to the ground seven times before his brother who does not have the blessing. Is there not something here similar to the conduct of our Lord Jesus Christ? Think of, think of Psalm 2. Psalm 2, God the Father speaking to the Son says, Ask of me and I will give the nations to you as your inheritance. Think of the angel Gabriel's words to the Virgin Mary in Luke chapter 1 as he is announcing to her that she will bear the Christ. And he speaks of, of Christ's kingdom and that he would have, have an everlasting kingdom. He'd be seated on David's throne eternally. This is, this is who our Lord Jesus is. But yet, in his life, our Jesus was a man of sorrows, a man acquainted with with grief. Pilate wasn't lying when he wrote that inscription, King of the Jews, and had it hung there upon the cross. But yet Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, submitted himself to this Roman bureaucrat. And when they were discussing the issue of authority, Jesus actually acknowledged Pilate's authority over him. He said, you would have no authority over me were it not given to you from above. And in this way, Jesus submitted himself to death. This is, this is Jesus, in a way, following in the footsteps of Jacob. Jesus, who has promised that the nations will be his inheritance, is humbling himself before a profane man, Pilate. And... Inasmuch as we are called to take up the cross and follow Jesus, following Jesus' humility, we also follow in the footsteps of Jacob's humility that we see here. 
Calvin, I think, put it well. He said, the Holy Spirit here places a mirror before us in which we may contemplate the state of the church as it appears in the world. For though many tokens of the divine favor are manifest in the family of Jacob, nevertheless, we perceive no dignity in him while lying with unmerited contempt in the presence of a profane man. Again, Jacob had the promises, but there he is and there are his sons through whom all the world would be blessed. Judah, from whom our Lord descended, was bowing down in the dust before this profane man, Esau. Isaac had said to Jacob, Be master of your mother's sons, and may your mother's sons bow down to you. And yet, Jacob is the one bowing down. And what is this but the paradox of the believer here in this world, the paradox of the Christian in this present age? Paul described his own apostolic ministry, 2 Corinthians 6, 8-10, by saying that we are regarded as deceivers and yet true, as unknown yet well-known, as dying yet behold we live, as punished yet not put to death, sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing all things. Or as he says in First uh, Corinthians four eleven through thirteen, he says, "To the present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty. We are poorly clothed, roughly treated. We are homeless. We toil, working with our own hands. When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we try to conciliate. We have become the scum of the world, the dreg of all things, even until now." Now think about, think about Paul. He's describing himself in those terms, but this is a man who's been saved from his sin, a man who has received an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, which was reserved in heaven for him. This was a man who was appointed an apostle, a special emissary of the Son of God to proclaim the name of Jesus before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. As a Christian, Paul possessed these glorious promises, but the outward aspect of his life was not glorious. As of yet, he was still a pilgrim, still on the way to the heavenly glory. His outer man, as he said in 2 Corinthians 4.16, was decaying. Though our outer man is decaying, he says, yet our, our inner man is being renewed day by day. And here in Genesis 33, we catch a glimpse in the conduct of Jacob before Esau of our condition in the world as the people of God. Though we possess glorious promises, justified and given new life and assured of ultimate victory, the eternal life with pleasures forevermore at the right hand of God in the new Jerusalem. Yet, in the meantime, we can expect rough treatment in this world. How did Jesus... Say it in the Sermon on the Mount. If you're persecuted for the sake of righteousness, you're blessed. We can expect to be insulted and to have evil spoken falsely against us because of Christ and his name. Peter, in that passage, 1 Peter 4, that we read together this morning, Peter said that the early Christians should not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that is among them as if something strange were happening to them, but rather to the degree that they shared in the sufferings of Christ, they were to keep on rejoicing. They were to know that if they were reviled for the name of Christ, they were blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rested on them. He said, if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. Why? 
For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And so we need to allow this picture of, of Jacob and Esau that we see here and the apparent reversal of the promise that we see being displayed here in the text to remind us that in this world, things are not always as they seem at first glance. If you had been an outward observer and had been looking at this and had known that one of these two brothers was going to be the blessed one and one would be the servant of the other, just looking at the scene here, we would have thought that it was Esau who had obtained the blessing and that Jacob was the one who would be the servant. This is the condition of the believer in the world, right? Things are not always as they first appear. And so we need to remember that this is the land of our pilgrimage and not the land of our final home. And we see even another glimpse in this same direction near the end of the chapter. Though Jacob, we're told there in, uh, in verse uh, 17, had, had come to Succoth and had built a house for himself and booths for his livestock, yet he was not yet at the end of his journey. Succoth is still on the, on the far side of the Jordan. And so then in, in verse 18, we see that he comes there into, into Shechem and... So he's crossed over the Jordan. He's crossed into this land that was promised to his seed. But yet, while there, it's not his yet. right? He has to purchase a piece of the land for 100 pieces of money. And he dwells there in a tent. As such, he was following in the footsteps of his, of his fathers, Abraham and Isaac. And Hebrews 11, 9, and 10 speaks of this when it says, By faith Abraham lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise, for he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. And the point is, is that not only in Jacob's conduct before Esau, but also by his manner of dwelling in the promised land, the fact that he's got to got to buy a parcel of land from uh, the sons of Hamor, and that he's living there in a tent, we are reminded of Jacob's pilgrim status in the land at this point, and also of our pilgrim status, our lowly status here in this world. We're reminded, in other words, of what we can expect before the promises are fulfilled. To quote Calvin again, He says, it becomes us also, according to his example, while we sojourn in this world, to depend upon the word of the Lord, that we may not deem it wearisome to be held wrapped in the shadow of death until our real life be manifested. Isn't that a wonderful expression? Until our real life be manifested. We're looking for the life of the world to come, recognizing that here below, Uh, We can expect all manner of bad things to come to us, all manner of persecutions, insults, revilings, and so forth for the name of Christ. And so in light of that, my brothers and my sisters, let's be willing to keep going. Let's be willing to be misunderstood, willing to be slandered, willing to be reviled, willing to be humble and appear lowly, even before those who are godless and immoral even before those who harden themselves to the things of God. We need to understand that this is simply a part of our taking up the cross and following after Christ. In order to do this, we need to rest in the promises that are ours in the gospel 
And we ought to be in resting in those promises, also praying for their fulfillment. Taking our cues from the Lord's Prayer, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done. And trusting the Lord that they will be fulfilled in due time. Now, it may be that you're here this morning and you're not a Christian and that all of this sounds very strange and very weird to you. In other words, why would someone willingly choose a path in life that requires that they would be willing to suffer? Who would willingly choose a path in life that requires humility, that requires patience in waiting upon God to fulfill his promises? Well, those are good questions. And the answer to those questions ultimately comes down to to two things. One, to who God is, and secondly, to who we are. Well, who is God? Well, God is the creator of all. He is the sovereign Lord of all. As that prayer in Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 6 puts it, You alone are the Lord. You made the heavens and the earth and all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that are in them. You give life to all of them, and the heavenly host bows down before you. This is, this is who God is, the sovereign creator, ruler, Lord of all. He's our maker, and that means then that we owe him our utmost loyalty and obedience. But then comes the second part, that is the bad news about us, that we are sinners, that though God has the right to our complete loyalty and obedience, yet we have not rendered that complete loyalty and obedience to him. The first and greatest commandment is that we love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we haven't done it. Haven't done it. The second greatest commandment is that we love our neighbor as ourselves. Haven't done that either. This then means that we brought judgment upon ourselves by violating the law of God. God is perfectly just, and his violated law demands punishment be given to those who have broken his law. But, thanks be to God, he's not only just, he is also full of mercy. And that mercy was demonstrated in him sending his only begotten son, our Lord Jesus Christ, into the world. And where we had violated the first and second commandments all over the place, Jesus never did. Jesus lived a perfect and sinless life in complete and full obedience to God. He satisfied all righteousness completely. And then he died on the cross as a sacrifice for all who would believe in him. He took away our sins by bearing them in his own body on the tree so that they might be done away with and cast away from us forever. The broken law required justice, and Christ satisfied that justice by his sacrifice on the cross. And now, since Christ is risen from the dead, praise God, he didn't stay dead, he is risen, all who trust in Christ receive his righteousness, that perfect righteousness which he earned, and it is now imputed to us through faith. This is what Christians mean when we speak of being justified by faith alone, that our sins are forgiven, that we are reconciled to God and brought into his family, that we are given the gift of eternal life and promised that one day we will reign with Christ. Again, that's a promise we're still waiting for the fulfillment of it. And this is why those of us who are Christians are willing, as it were, to sign up for a life that requires patience, that requires humility, It requires a willingness to suffer here on earth. It goes back to who we are as sinners and who God is as our creator, as our judge, and also as our savior. 
We see our need of salvation and we go to Christ for it and we receive it on his terms. And his terms are that we repent of our sins and that we follow him in faith. Repentance means turning away, turning away from our sins and charting a new path following Christ. Following Jesus means walking in his footsteps and obeying his commands. As we've already considered this morning, Jesus was humble, oh so humble considering who he was and considering what he did through all of his life, especially there before Pilate on the way to the cross. And so following Jesus for us means that we, we too have to be humble for, before others, that we too have to be patient in trials. It means that we have to be willing to suffer in this world, even as Christ suffered in this world, even as Christ was reviled and slandered, had much evil spoken against him. And we have to wait patiently for Christ's kingdom to come and that time when all will be set right. And we also have to recognize that God is working through all of these things to shape us into the kind of people that he wants us to be. He uses all of these things, the suffering, the persecutions, the patience, the humility, the gentleness that we are called to demonstrate before others. He uses all of these things to shape us to be more like Christ, to conform us to the image of Christ. Again, it all goes back to who God is and to who we are. It goes back to our need and to God's gracious provision for us in Christ. And if you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, I would encourage you to seriously consider these things. You need to think about who God is. You need to think about who you are as a sinner and your need for a Savior. You need to think about who God is both in terms of Him being a righteous judge and also in terms of Him being a loving Heavenly Father who has made a way by which rebellious mankind can be reconciled and restored to Him. You need to think seriously about these things. And I call upon you today to turn away from your sins and to believe in Christ. And if you have more questions about anything that I've just said or what it means to follow after Christ and turn away from your sins and believe in Him, you can talk to me or talk to another Christian whom you know here. We would love to tell you more about what it means to turn away from your sins and to follow after Jesus. And now, let's come to our our second point this morning, which is... Acknowledge the blessings of God. And we'll be, as I said, more brief here on this this second point. Here in Genesis chapter 33, we see that by the blessing of God, when the brothers finally meet, Esau runs to meet Jacob, he embraces him, and kissed him. Now, this is obviously not the kind of meeting that Jacob was expecting. At the very least, it's not the kind of meeting that he was prepared for. And apparently this is not the account that some readers were looking to find here in Genesis 33. Uh, There was apparently one Jewish commentary that changed the words from and he kissed him to read instead and he (laughs) bit him. (laughs) But very clearly that that is not what happened. This was a warm and brotherly reception of Jacob on the part of his brother Esau. And we need to see this for for what it is. It is a clear answer to prayer. right? Jacob had prayed back in Genesis 32, 9 through 12 for deliverance. In context, the deliverance he sought was a deliverance from his brother's potential violence. 
Jacob framed that prayer by appealing to God's promise and God's command, and the Lord answered that prayer. Esau, for all we can tell, had come out with violent intent, but violence is not what happened. Instead, it was a loving, brotherly reunion. Proverbs 21.1 tells us that the king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. And indeed, from all that we can see, he did that here, that Esau had been bent upon violence of some sort, intimidation of some sort, but there was a loving, brotherly reunion. And the scripture is clear that the Lord hears and answers prayer. Psalm 65 2 refers to the Lord as the one who hears prayer. Oh, you who hear prayer. And in our call to worship in Psalm 116, we heard those words, I love the Lord because he hears my voice. Because he has inclined his ear to me, therefore I shall call upon him as long as I live. And this morning we sang Psalm 66. Psalm 66, 20 says, Blessed be God who has not turned away my prayer nor his loving kindness from me. The meeting of these two brothers here is clearly an answer to prayer. And you'll notice elsewhere here in the chapter how Jacob is continually acknowledging God's blessing to him. When Esau asks about the children in verse 5, Jacob responds by saying, These are the children whom God has graciously given your servant. You see it in verse 10 when Jacob says to Esau, I see your face as one sees the face of of God and you have received me favorably. You see it in verse 11 as he urges Esau to receive the gift of the livestock that he had sent on ahead and he says to Esau, please take my gift which has been brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have plenty. Over and over again, Jacob sees and acknowledges the blessing of God in his life. God has graciously provided him with his family. God had graciously changed Esau's heart toward him and granted this brotherly reconciliation instead of a murder or a massacre, which was an answer to Jacob's prayer. God had graciously provided Jacob with all of the blessings, the tangible physical blessings such that he had plenty. And he, Jacob is very open about acknowledging the goodness of God in these things. And you notice, again, there at the end of the chapter, that once he got settled in the land of Canaan at Shechem, he erected an altar there, in verse 20, and he called that altar El Eloi Israel, which means God, the God of Israel. And if we think about what would take place at an altar, this was a place where God's worship would take place, where sacrifices would be offered, acknowledging the goodness of God and providing those animals to them in the first place. It was the way in which God would be worshipped and acknowledged in that time. And so Jacob tangibly saw the grace of God in his life, and he acknowledged it and worshipped God for it. Now what about you? Do you see the grace of God tangibly in your life? Do you see it in the food that you eat, in the home that you live in, in the possessions that you own, in the family that you have, in the relationships that you have to other people, in the answers to prayer that you have received? Do you see the grace of God specifically toward you in the gift of His Son? Do you see it in that God did not spare His own Son, but graciously gave Him up for us all? 
I hope the answer is yes. That yes, you see the graciousness of God towards you in all of these things. The answer should be yes. All of these are the gifts of God's grace to you. And we should acknowledge them as such before men. And we must give thanks and praise and worship to God on account of what he has done. We find such a call to worship God in Psalm 103, where the psalmist says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits, who pardons all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion and satisfies your years with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. And if you think about the earthly ministry of Jesus, don't we find a remarkable example of a man who did just that in Luke 17 in that account of those ten lepers who were healed. You remember the scene, these Ten men who had leprosy were there, and Jesus told them to go and show themselves to the priests. And as they were going, they were cleansed from their leprosy. Nine of them kept on going. But there was one. There was the one who saw what had happened. He turned back, and Luke says that he glorified God with a loud voice and fell on his face at the feet of Jesus, giving thanks. That was the man who did the right thing. Right? This man... He was a Samaritan, but he did the right thing. He knew what needed to be done. He came to Jesus and honored him and glorified him. And so also you and I must be quick to give the glory of God for all that he has done for us, for all that he has given to us. And there are a multitude of ways of giving glory and praise to God for what he has done. We can do this in private prayer when we ourselves are by ourselves. We can give thanks to God for his blessings. We can do this when we gather together as a church. We can join our prayers together, not only in terms of asking for what we need and what we desire, but also in returning thanks to God for what he has given to us. And we can do this corporately in song as we sing the praise of God together and give thanks to his name together with music. And we should learn a lesson here from Jacob that we can give glory to God for what he has done, even when we are not speaking directly to God. Jacob here was giving glory to God for his gracious gifts by verbally acknowledging before Esau that what he had was the gift of God. He was acknowledging before men that God was the giver of all these things that he had received. Jacob didn't just simply say when asked, well, those are my kids. He said, these are the children which God has graciously given me. And when he was commenting about his possession, Jacob didn't say, well, I've, I've worked hard, I've been lucky, I've got enough. He said, this, he said, God has dealt graciously with me. He acknowledged that the grace and the benevolence of God in all that he had. And God's people today should still do the same thing. We should still be openly acknowledging before men that what we have is the gift of God. Let's pray. Our Father, we recognize your kindness to us as we see Jacob acknowledging your gracious provision in terms of family and children and in terms of material wealth. 
Lord, we ask that we too would be quick to acknowledge your grace and favor before men. And not only before men, but before you, that we would return thanks to you even as that one leper did who fell at the feet of Jesus. Lord, we pray that we would do the same. And Father, we ask that you would grant us patience as we live in a paradoxical age in which we who have the promises of God and the promises of glory and eternity are often seen to be in situations which would argue the contrary. Lord, we pray that you give us patience, that you give us faith, that you would strengthen us, that we might faithfully walk with you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.